When this started, I confess I did not understand. I guess maybe that's how it all turned out to be such a mess. Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge, the space where we talk about difficult emotions, difficult experiences, the interactions that turn out to be such a mess and can too easily lead to burnout. In this space, in this Teacher's Lounge, we talk about the difficult parts of teaching in ways that make things better, make you feel better, make your school relationships better, make learning better, miraculously. What you'll hear in every episode is a story, a real story, told by a teacher in one of the many teacher support groups that I've run over the years. The story will be camouflaged to protect confidentiality. But it's not just the teacher's story I'll tell. I'll also share how I and the teachers in the teacher support group responded to the story, thought about the story, framed the story, and eventually came up with a plan of action to resolve the story. At the end of every episode, I'll share a pithy axiom for you to take away with you into your own classroom, where it might help you deal with your own difficult stories and emotions. Because teaching well is difficult, and all teachers can use this kind of caring, thoughtful, dynamic, solution-oriented support. This, my friends, is the teacher's lounge you have been wanting and needing and deserving your entire teaching life. I'm Betsy Burris. Let's get started. Today is an interview day. I have the great pleasure of talking with someone I met through an award-winning article that I happened to read a few months ago. The article is called The Restorative Classroom, a Psychoanalytic Playground in a Public School. I have it right here. And it won the Schillinger Prize from Division 39, which is a psychoanalytic arm of the American Psychological Association, and was published in the fall issue of Division Review. After I read and marveled at this article, I was amazed by this article, I decided to contact its author, Erica Young, and she is my guest today on the Teacher's Lounge podcast. Before I turn it over to Erica, I just want to say that this article hit me like a long-lost friend emerging from the gloom. First of all, it's rare to read about education in any psychoanalytic journal, um, but the psychoanalytic perspective is a perspective I've been pushing for over a decade. So this was like, oh my God, there's someone out there who knows what I'm talking about. It can be quite lonely to take this perspective in the field of education, but Erica is doing it. And so are some other people that she'll tell us about. Second of all, the story you told Erica was brilliant. It was, mm-hmm. it was stunning. Um, a really striking example of the power of relationships between teachers and students. I can't wait to talk more about it. Um, So thank you for taking the time to talk with me. You're welcome. Uh, Thank you. I'm going to share a few vital statistics about you. You work in the Hartford School District in Vermont as a special educator in a therapeutic classroom in a public school. You're pursuing an MA in clinical psychology. You have been teaching in public schools for six years. And prior to that, you were a preschool teacher in a private Montessori-based preschool, which is great. So can you just briefly tell us what that your psychoanalytic playground article was about? I'm happy to. And thank you so much for that very kind introduction. I really appreciate it. And it was such an honor to have you reach out to me. I truly appreciate it. Um, Yeah, I'm happy to talk about the article and what it's about and I guess and how it came to be even. So the APA Division 39 
Um, they do this oh, contest every, I mean, it's every two years, but they, you know, they have a theme and the theme that last year was um, the psycho Freud's idea of a psychoanalytic playground. And, you know, I saw the um, invitation to submit papers and I thought, that is a great way to think about what I do in a class, in a very specialized classroom um, every day. And so I took, I, so, I, so I wrote about it and was pleased that the, uh, the division honored me with the award. So what I wrote about was the restorative classrooms where I used to work, a therapeutic classroom that was designed specifically to support students with severe social emotional needs. These are the kids for whom the typical supports in classrooms just are not working, you know, because always the goal is the least restrictive environment. So if a child can stay in their classroom um, with interventions and supports there, that's what that's what we want, right? And you know, I work in Vermont. Vermont is a state that prides itself on its focus on inclusion, um, and many other states do too, but Vermont certainly does. So the goal is to have kids in the classroom. So these are kids for whom. X, Y, Z, well, really A through Z have been tried in the classroom. Um, and it, it just has not worked. And so typical supports in a, in a public school classroom, you know, imagine educators listening to this interview, they will well know, they will well know that supports in a classroom for a kid with severe social emotional needs tend to be pretty behaviorist. There's a reward system, a consequence system, understanding what comes first, what behavior is, what comes after. Um, and that can help some students, but for students who, you know, if their behavior is coming from a place of deep, deep suffering and the behavioral stuff just falls apart, it just doesn't work, uh, which is what I saw as a classroom teacher. So before I came to the, the restorative classroom, I was a general ed classroom teacher, and then I started working with kids in this specialized way. So what I wrote about was one student named Helen, who was um, second grader at the time in my classroom. And she, you know, I won't go into all the details of the article here, but she was a, a child who needed an incredible amount of support from our team. So it was myself um, and two mental health clinicians, essentially. And we were um, supervised by a clinical psychologist and part of a bigger team. So it was my team in my classroom. And then there are two other classrooms. We were the, we had the youngest students, kindergarten through second grade. And there's a third through fifth grade program and a sixth through eighth grade program. And we worked together as a big team, but my small team worked really closely together to support this, to support all of our students, but this student in particular, Helen. So what I wrote about in, for the division 39 essay was how Helen we had Helen for a year. She responded really well to what we did in the classroom. And what we do in the classroom, I'll probably talk about more in more detail about as we as we go through this interview. But she responded really well to the services we provided it from a psychodynamic, psychoanalytic perspective, um, particularly self-psychology. Mm-hmm. And she did really well that first year. Long story short, she had a really tough summer. We didn't see her all summer, even though we provide services over the summer. Um, and she moved away. And we didn't know that until the, the, the school started the next year and there was no Helen. And she, yeah, she just wasn't there. The school system where she moved to, the town where she moved to, so she enrolled in school there. Within a few days of the start of the school year, they called us and they said, hey, this is not working. Like 
it, she, Helen's aggressive. She's tearing apart the classroom. She's hurting people. And the only thing we can do with Helen is put her on an iPad in a room with one staff member. And that's not education. And we don't feel good about it. And you got to help us out. Or if you can't help us out. So we she ended up re-enrolling with us. Uh, but when she started, she was in a nearly catatonic state. You know, wouldn't really talk, wouldn't look at us, certainly wouldn't interact with peers, nothing like that. Um, she was in a really tough, really tough place. And what it took to support Helen through that was our team, the three of us, and then beyond that, the entire team. But the three of us really intensively working together, you know, from a psychodynamic perspective where we were relying on parallel process, reverie, counter-transference, um, you know, in a manner that allowed us to be there for Helen and be present with Helen, to sit with her through these really, really tough feelings. We did not make it. We don't make interpretations. It's not one-on-one counseling. It's nothing like that. It's not, you know, I'm not a therapist yet. I will be, <laughs> but this I was her, I was her teacher. Um, and the essay details exactly how we went through that, but essentially the three of us working together, taking turns sitting with her and being able to sit with her incredibly strong feelings. And they were incredibly strong, even though she was silent incredibly overwhelming, overwhelming feelings. Um, by being able to sit with those feelings, having the time to process them with each other, having the training so that we could understand what it was we were going through with her and what she was going through, that training um, and that theoretical understanding was essential to helping her and supporting her. And to us, the team, surviving her intense feelings and affect. When when you did this work together, basically the way I see it is, and you might have said it this way in your article, metabolizing her feelings yes. for her. What yes. did, what happened? What happened in her? How, how did she change or respond? Yeah. So at the end of each day, we, the team, um, had built in time to process, actually the beginning and end of each day. But my, my memory is that it was really the end of the days where we would talk about Helen and we were absolutely metabolizing her feelings and together we had to do it together. That was like together, together, together. There's no way we were going to do that by ourselves because, you know, whereas a therapist might sit with a patient for an hour a day, even if it's every you know five days a week, this is from eight to two or three all day long, every day. That's a long time. Um, and she did not want to, she, she was just sitting you know, she wasn't able to engage in anything we offered her snack, you know, recess, nothing. She just was not engaged. So after metabolizing, processing, thinking about the feelings and the stuff that was coming up for us, she started to emerge. And within a, a two or three weeks, she, when she came in the morning, she wanted to eat breakfast with us. That was sort of the first step. And then, you know, and then she wanted to chat with us a little bit and then you know she just she just came she, well the way I really I think I read it in the article and the way it felt it was like she came back to life that's what it, that's what it felt like it felt like oh there there you are Helen there you are you're back you're back I mean we wouldn't have said it like this to her but it, what it felt like it was like you're back where, from wherever you came from and we're so glad you're back wow you know? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I want to know, you know, your background and, and how you mm-hmm. came to or how you are coming to an expertise in, in this um, mm-hmm. psychodynamic mm-hmm. approach to teaching. Um, yeah. But I wonder if you can explain, first of all, well, how, if you can explain why you think what you did worked. Mm. Oh, interesting question. To, to, um, so I think it worked because what we were offering Helen was this, this is where like, I'm like mindful of the fact that if it's mostly educators listening, like this is just not training that comes in for educators, for educators. And I know this cause that's where my original training was in. Right. Yeah. Um, what we were doing for Helen, I, we conceptualized, you know, with the support of, of supervisors who have doctoral level training in this stuff. Um, I think, I think that's what I like to emphasize. It's not like we were like, you know, child whisperers or it wasn't magical. <laughs> it was like, we had the training and the support. And there are theories um, underlying your and theories, strong, strong theories, um, you know, evidence-based theory, like it's time tested theory that allowed us to do this work. It's not magic. So we were able to offer for Helen a container and containment. So when in sitting with her, what we did, we took turns sitting with her. And, and I read about the articles, like we had to do it on a schedule because you would feel like, oh, I'm cool. I'm fine. It's fine sitting with this child. And then um, you would come in our classroom. We had a couple of break rooms and, you know, they had windows and we had bean bags and pillows and whatever, you know, stuffed animals. She didn't usually want any of that stuff in there. She just like push it out. Um, but that those, you know, she was welcome to have any of those things in there, but she, sometimes she wanted the bead bag to sit on. But, um, after sitting with her for a while, we would, any one of us would just feel absolutely overwhelmed with sadness or despair or grief. I mean, it was just intense, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And it was like, okay, this is just coming off of her in waves and waves. And I'm not, I won't go into her trauma history, but it, it just suffice it to say that she had an extensive trauma history. So that's, you know, we hypothesized what she was holding was, was really, really hard, hard feelings from her life. And, and she don't know what her summer was like other than pretty, really isolated, very, very isolated prior to coming to us. So in that space with one adult at a time, and then, and then, you know, but contact with all of us throughout the day, um, she was held, meaning not physically held, but we were able to hold her feelings. We weren't afraid of feeling the feelings. She didn't have to be or do anything different than she was. You know, we were like, Helen, you really got to take off your jacket and come to your desk or you don't get to go outside. There was none of that because we, we could see she wasn't, there's times to say that to children, certainly, but she was pre, 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 pre those kinds of interventions. You know, she was, a, she was really withdrawn, deeply, deeply withdrawn and inside of herself. Yeah. So we there was very little language, very little conversation between the adult and the child who was sitting with Helen. Maybe we would try at different times to say things to her, but she rarely responded. And sometimes would just go further into her jacket. And then, so she was doing that, like, okay, no, you know, she doesn't want to hear anymore. Um, yeah, so it's holding her very, very strong feelings, not being afraid of them, and, and just allowing her to survive them. Yeah. By surviving them yourself. 
by surviving them ourselves. Exactly. So she was surviving her own feelings in the presence of us, and we were surviving them. And I was like, you know what, Helen? Without, we would never say this. This is all internal. I was like, you know what, Helen? (laughs) Your strong feelings aren't going to hurt me, and it's going to be okay. So fantastic. And and so, I mean, it does, it is theory based. It is reliably uh, reasonable. It's logical Mm. what you did, but it does feel like magic because this is not the kind of thing that we think about. It's, there's nothing tangible about emotions. It's weird to think this child's feelings are now implanted in me. How could I possibly be feeling? This is what you mean by countertransference. You were saying the the things that you guys worked on countertransference is how we as human beings can actually induce in other people, the feelings that we are having. It's crazy, but it happens. And, and the, what I think, is br- this happens in classrooms all the time. Teachers are mm-hmm. always at risk of being uh, uh, of having countertransferential responses to students. Yeah. What you mm-hmm. di- what you guys did that took it beyond was to recognize or somehow learn. Like it sounded almost like you stumbled into the realization that by sitting together and processing the feelings that she induced yeah. in you, talking about them, scouring them out getting them out of the table, normalizing them or understanding them or theorizing about them and supporting each other and feeling them. You were doing that work for her. You were, you were right. So that parallel process. Right. And and it's not, it's not like you're giving her something like here's a, here's the map that I drew or here's, you Mm -hmm. did it. And before she could do it, It, it's, this is just magnificent. And yes. Super extreme example of the kind of work that I think teachers can do Mm. um, without. Mm -hmm. Right. With the right, yes, with the right training. So we, the, it's not so much that we stumbled upon processing because that's really built into the day, right? Like that was like, that was built into the program specifically to do this. And what I, well, the way it came up with Helen was it became as this is, you know, as, as, as happens, there was no way not to process our feelings about Helen. Like she, um, in her, not, not in words, but demanded that of us by, by, by giving us her feelings so strongly. Again, this is not, you know, she's not through words like, Hey, take my feelings. I can't handle them. <laughs> it's and it's just, not even conscious. Not even conscious. She wasn't yeah. doing anything particular. She was just being, and she was just, beautiful. yeah. And I, and I can imagine like my heart goes out to the other school system who does not have a program like this because very few schools do. And they're doing their best with her and they're thinking like how, you know, she's, she's fallen apart. She's being wild. How do we, you know, how do we calm her down? And nothing was working. Nothing, nothing, nothing was working. And then, you know, it's interesting that by the time she, she was never aggressive with us is the most interesting either the first year or the second year we had, that's just not, was not her presentation with us. It was in other classrooms before she came to us. And then again, but I think I might, I wonder if that's because she knew she could actually just be with us. So it's actually in a way growth that she was able to just be as sad as she was. Oh, fantastic. And I totally, I just want to underline you were a, she recognized you guys as containing her that it yes. back yeah. to your school. She was contained. She was held very tightly and, mm-hmm. and, was al- and the holding that you did was to allow her to be. Whereas yes. in the other yeah. school, she was breaking the walls. She was throwing furniture. She yeah. was attacking people. She was basically in her, through her behavior, conveying to her caretakers that there was no holding happening. That she Yes. Yeah. Help me. <laughs> yeah. Help me. Stop Help me. me. Right. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and, you know, 
these teachers, of course, are, are, are doing their best to um, just keep that their other students safe, <laughs> safe. And I know this because having been in the classroom, like you, you've got, you know, 15 or more other kids in the classroom and you've got to um, hold the line and find a way to get through it. And so we had the privilege of having fewer students, more staff, this training, and then this built in, in processing time where we could really work through her feelings. And, you know, this is without her, right? We're not talking to her about her feelings. We're talking to each other. And the other, the other, um, you know, I would think of it also counter-transference definitely. And then in projective identification, where she's just injecting us with these really dark, dark feelings because they've got to have somewhere to go so she can get through it. Say, can you Um, say more about projective identification? What is it? Yeah, so this comes from my training. So we, one of the articles we read was called On Projective Identification by Thomas Ogden. And so he writes about, I think Melanie Klein may have been the first person to introduce projective identification. Um, and so the idea is that you really are ejecting your big bad feeling into the into the other person, like, I, you know, I am so angry. Here's my anger. You feel it now and you do something with it and you make sense of it because it's too much for me. Mm-hmm. So the way I was first trained in that was this really simple thing, which is turns out feelings are contagious, <laughs> which makes sense. Like, oh, why do I suddenly feel so uh, like with, or with Helen is actually sad. Why do I feel so sad around Helen? Oh, because Helen's incredibly sad. Um, and, you know, it's, it's would seem. You know, um, so it, she was really passing that on to us. Um, and, you know, we can think of examples in our own lives if we do that with our spouses or maybe our children do it with us or any anyone who's close to us. You know, maybe you have a friend who's really anxious about something. Suddenly now you're anxious and nervous and, wait, I was feeling fine five minutes ago. Um, it's just what we do as humans. We just are, are we tend to spread the feelings around <laughs> because we need each other to, to manage them. And, and a, a phrase would be very familiar to teachers is um, we need each other to co-regulate. We nice. need each other to, yeah, to um, help each other get through, through the, like we're designed, humans are designed to do that. As you know, we pretty, you know, neuroscience has shown that to us now. Like we get that now, right? We know that we have to get through the stuff together. Yeah. So I want to I want to ask you to to get us. I mean, we can return to this story. It's just such an amazing story. But can you talk about your background and how you? Hmm. I mean, you told us a little bit about the background of how you got to Helen and started working with her. But I know that you've been working with, with a specific person and a program. And yeah, yeah, happy to talk about that. So I um, when I was working in um, a different public school with really young kids, I, you know, had a, as, and I wonder how familiar this will sound to many, you know, teachers, you had a lot of kids who were really, really dysregulated and, and really aggressive in the classroom. And it was my job to somehow both keep everybody safe and teach them to read and uh, add and subtract, (laughs) become friends. And, you know, my experience of working with them was my first priority is safety. I'm going to keep these kids safe. You know, and this is a group of kids. It just just so happened that a number of them had a pretty significant trauma history, and they acted out really aggressive behavior 
teachers in classroom. And for many of them, this was their first time in a public school. So I started consulting with a psychologist, William Ketterer, and he um, trained me in his model that we then used in the restorative classroom. So he has, uh, the restorative classroom was up and running. Um, and then eventually I was hired on to develop the restorative classroom for the little kids for the K to two program. They didn't have a program for students who were quite that young. So my introduction to it was consultation to support the students in my classroom. And it was incredibly effective in the general ed setting. Mm-hmm. Um, not all students, you know, the students I work with in the therapeutic classroom setting, they, again, like they don't respond. They're in a separate setting because they haven't responded to interventions in a general classroom. But there are many, many children who can, you know, who can with enough of the right kind of support, who can stay in their classroom. And again, that is the goal. We want them to be with their peers. We want them in the classroom. So that's how I started. And so what we call him Dr. K, Dr. Ketterer, Dr. K. He trained me in his model, which is called Healing the Self, which I talk about in the article. And so it's a self-psychology-based model of development and intervention. So meaning looking at students suffering as a developmental deficit. So these kids, you know, didn't get their early needs met. And this is this again relates like a, a lot of educators will be very, very familiar with attachment theory, right? And so attachment theory, if you're missing your early attachment needs, that's going to come up later in your life. And you can draw a lot of parallels to attachment theory and and the work that we do. It's not the same, but lots of parallels. So self-psychology says, this is um, a theory developed by Heinz Kohut. Self-psychology says that Children need, from from the very beginning, from infancy, caregivers who can be empathic to their child, so offer empathic attunement, offer a sense of belonging, which he called twinship, but like, hey, I'm you're part of the family, you belong with me, we're together. And then also what Kohak called an idealizing transference and what, what Dr. K calls just idealization. So when it comes to teaching, it's like, can this kid look up to me to take care of them? And for the infant, it's, can this, my parent or parent figure caregiver, can I rely on them to consistently care for me emotionally, physically, the whole nine yards. So those three things, empathy, a sense of belonging and idealization are essential developmental needs. And if they're not provided for adequately enough, then the child is left not feeling quite so whole and quite so complete. Something is missing. And then we talk about the feelings of fragmentation. Some of you may feel like you're falling apart. You can't hold it together when things get tough. You fall apart really easily when there are big feelings. You don't have that core sense of, I got this, you know. So I was trained in healing the self, which takes these ideas, which are psychoanalytic ideas, and it takes these ideas. And what Dr. K did was, well, I would say metabolize them, actually, <laughs> metabolize them in a way um, that can be brought into a school, onto a classroom that non-therapists can use. And it's not providing therapy to a child to provide these needs. It's not therapy. It's um, fundamental needs. The way Dr. K writes about it and the way Kohut wrote about it, too, but the, to, is, is to help the child with a sense of self-esteem and self-worth. Mm-hmm. 
So these, these fundamental aspects that allow us to feel good enough. And, and I think teachers do a lot of these things naturally, just like parents do a lot of these things naturally without having to be trained or coached or taught how to do them. But having an, a deeper understanding and a more nuanced understanding and a more sophisticated understanding helps us with those kids who need that much more of those things. Like the average, you know, student, you know, it's hard to say what an average student is, but um, like if we're thinking socially and emotionally, you know, a teacher can pretty easily be someone the kid can look up to, someone like the child feels understood by, and the child, the teachers are really good at creating the little classroom cultures, whether it's through rituals or you know, just things that are unique to their classroom. And for many, many, many kids that, that works, but it doesn't work for everyone. So Dr. K trained me in that model. I came over to the restorative classroom and developed the K-2 program, you know, along with my team, not by myself, along with my team. And I continued to be, we all were, you know, continued to be trained by Dr. K, read a lot of articles, attended conferences, Zoom conferences, in-person conferences, where we, we thought a lot about the theory that underlies what we do every day in the classroom. I had never heard the words countertransference or projective identification. I didn't know parallel process and none of these things when I first started working with, with Dr. K. So I just want to say what you're describing, the transformation that you experienced when you started working with Dr. K was mm-hmm. to excavate or at least come in contact with the bedrock underlying the behaviors that you were seeing. In the yes. Classroom, which yes. you as a teacher yep. were, were trained to be to be focusing on. The behaviors were what you were supposed to be focusing yes. on, right? right? As opposed to the, the magma that erupts into those behaviors. And, and Dr. K helps you actually work with the magma, which is... Yeah, that's a great metaphor. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, you know, when I first started working with the students in my general ed classroom in the different school, I had, you know, I was watching these kids <laughs> tear the place apart, hurt each hurt me and thinking like, this isn't, this is not good. And then, so I called in, of course, I talked to my principal, we called in the, the, you know, guidance counselor and the behavior specialist. And we tried a million things before Dr. K was introduced to me. And those things were all behavioral, you know, track behaviors on a chart, give this a number of stickers, all well-intentioned things. Like how can we help, you know, Timmy stop hitting? How can we help this little girl not hide under the table anymore? Like what, you know, it's all well-intentioned. We want the behaviors to stop so this child can, can get an education. Everyone's trying to do the right thing. And it's just, we were working with the best information that we had, yes. which identify the behavior, identify what's coming before the behavior and what's coming after the behavior, analyze that and think about um, from, you're right, you're just looking at the behavior. The trauma-informed practice, like there's a little bit more of looking underneath the behavior, but it, it still leaves a lot of question marks, I think. What Dr. K does by tapping into this kind of universal theory, a theory that applies across the board, whether you are, I mean, 
well, whether you're traumatized or not, or whether or not a trauma can yeah. be identified or not. Because let's, let's yeah. just say if you are not, if you're not securely attached, that one could argue that you have been traumatized. But, you know, trauma is used so much that getting theory that actually helps you address the emotions the, the presentation of mm-hmm. a child who's somehow not getting or hasn't gotten what he or she needs, it matters less that yeah. there's trauma or what the trauma is and more that there's a need and that there's a way of determining what the need is and what the intervention, what an attuned intervention might look like if you actually start thinking in terms of that underlying magma or bedrock, as I call it, the emotional uh, life. Yeah, and sometimes we talk about that, the very idea that we don't necessarily even need to know the child's history. And sometimes it's way too intrusive to know the child's history. I didn't, you know, we never asked Helen, what happened this summer? Right. You know, Um, and certainly if a child discloses something to us and we need to make reports, of course, of course, of course, all that minute report stuff. We want our children, these students to be safe and all those things. We approach them. But one of the phrases Dr. K has taught me and my team is by invitation only. Yeah. Meaning we ask Helen, may I sit with you? Or we ask Helen, um, is it okay if I, if I talk? Like we'll, we'll say that to students. Is it okay if I talk right now? And if they say no, no means no. <laughs> we don't talk. We, it's by invitation, meaning at their pace. I don't need to dig into Helen's experience if she's not ready to share it. She's sharing it with me anyway, just mm-hmm. by being and feeling. That's 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 enough. <laughs> that is enough. And, and her inner world is precious. And it is hers. And what I have to ask myself, what right do I have to go into that world without her inviting me? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, again, adults really mean well when they ask kids, to talk, to say something about their experience. Because I think it sometimes can be so frustrating as a teacher or a different or a parent or another caring adult in a child's life to like, what's going on? I want to help you. I understand that impulse completely. It's just not always the approach that's, that's um, going to feel good yeah. to the child. So I want to ask, there's, I don't know if you want to tell another story, but it might be really great to get another example of the kind of work you do. And maybe um, a story that is not as extreme as a Helen story, but is maybe more. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to. And I was thinking something, that's something you said just a few minutes ago that um, we sort of try to figure out what the need is. So know that fundamentally kids need, well, really humans, but we needed it from a very young age, empathic attunement, belonging, and people we can look up to, to care for us. You know, someone might be missing one of those things more than another, or they might need one of those things more than another in that moment. I mean, I think about that for myself or any person, okay. like it's times in your life when you need something a little more than you need something else, or a particular point in time, if something is hard, you need, you really need your friends to be empathic in that moment versus um trying to fix you right just trying to fix you so i sometimes think of that group of students who was with helen and i think about how they all needed something a little bit differently than each other at different times and the way dr k talks about it is those those these what he calls relational ingredients are fluid and it depends on the child it depends on the moment and you sort of sense into what is it that um 
what will serve this child best? And what do we do? We make a hypothesis and we test it. Exactly. It's not that we have to know because we drive ourselves crazy if we think we have to know. Um, and again, like I'm thinking of teachers, like teachers are really hard on themselves when it comes to knowing what the child needs. And we think academically and social emotionally and, you know, attrition, like teachers are really invested in giving their students what they need. And from my experience, like they really want to do that. And there's a lot of pressure to do that. And I think one of the takeaways for me from working this way is make a hypothesis based on theory, based on evidence-based practice, you know, based on training and, and you test it out. Yeah. And if it doesn't work, okay, the hypothesis is wrong. Now you got to try something else. Exactly. Yeah. So this a group of students I had alongside Helen that particular year. One of them was a student. So I can think of one student who very much needed us to be empathic to him. And he relied on one of the staff members to engage in um, play with him and play like puppet play in particular, stuffed animals. And through that play, she was really able to sense into him and his world. And he just felt, I think, very cared for by her and very understood by her in the way that she played with him. Mm. Um, and by and having those play breaks allowed him to do his academics. Yeah. To regulate. Know. To regulate, yeah. yeah. To regulate. He often yeah. started his morning playing with her. And then he'd be like, oh, okay, I'm ready for math. And he would say that. I'm ready for math now. <laughs> like, okay. Let's go to math. You know? <laughs> So he was really relying on her empathic attunement and I'm sure belonging too. He felt really close to her in those moments. Then another student who came to us initially, it's fluid, it changes over time, but initially I think he was really asking us to be idealizable. So he came in, didn't want to listen to any rules he would try to he'd like sort of look at us and then go to pinch someone else or go to do something a little bit. He'd always be looking at us. And I think what he was asking us to do was like, no, we got you. You're not going to pinch anyone. You're not going to, you know, a couple of times he tried to run away and we, we were able to contain that really easily. And I think what he was saying was like, Hey, can you do this or not? <laughs> can you keep me safe or not? Yes. And we just made it very yeah, we made it very clear. We got you. We're going to keep you safe. But he would he sort of kept testing that. And I, th I think what he was asking is, how idealizable are you really? Are you going to let me down or can you do this? And once he seemed like he started to rely on our capacity to keep him safe and help him learn to follow the rules, then he... Um, he learned to read really, really quickly. <laughs> he learned to add and subtract really, really quickly. And this was a child who their previous classroom, you know, he wasn't accessing any instruction because he was just, he was very, really out of control in the classroom. And then he, with us, he was able to buckle down and do his schoolwork <laughs> and learn to be a student. Um, and it felt like we did very few interventions with him at all, like very, very few but I think what we really were doing was just being, it was also containment, but different than Helen's. It wasn't that same super intensive emotional containment. It was more like boundaries, rules and expectations. We got this, you know. How did you do it? When he was, when he was looking at you like, yeah, I'm going to pinch her. What did you do? <laughs> yeah. Well, we would, I would say to him, I can see you're going to do that and you need to stop. <laughs> just like very direct, very simple. Can't pinch her. <laughs> and he would stop. 
And if I didn't see it in time or if he didn't stop, he would be asked to do a timeout at his desk. And, he, and when we do timeouts, it's like sit with the child, show them the timer and be like, we can do this. We're not going to talk for two minutes mm. with him. So he's not alone and isolated. Mm. It's to, we do it together. And he, and he would do his right at his desk and we would do it for two minutes. And I would stop the timer, you know, where the timer would stop. And I'd say, okay, are you ready to be safe? And he'd be like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then he would go on. And it was... Um, with him, we could really use language very clearly. Yeah. You know, he was articulate. He was able to right. just follow the verbal directions. And again, for him, I think the difference between his other setting and us was we had smaller number of students. And, you know, I think I think the other big, big, big piece for him is was because of our training, because we as a team felt so rock solid in each other, we weren't afraid of him. Or his behaviors or his feelings, like we know we can handle it. We know we have the capacity to do it. So we don't have to, yeah, we just, we, we weren't afraid of him. I think that's what he's really asking us is, can you do this or is this too hard for you? Am I too much for you? Yes. It's just another beautiful example of how emotions are contagious. And this is an example of how your emotion is contagious for him. That is for you and the teachers to be absolutely confident that he will do the right thing. That is to actually embody trust. Mm. He gets Mm. that you trust him. Yes. And and, and as opposed to embodying distrust, expecting the worst, seeing him as a bad boy or being afraid of him, as you say, being or fearing that that you don't have the power, that you don't have the authority, that it's just this. Again, it feels magical because to get to that point, to get to the point where you can trust a child who is teaching you that he's untrustworthy. At least that's right. what, it, what it looks like, right? Here I go. I'm going to pinch. No, yeah. if you to reframe it as he's testing us to see whether mm. or not we can hold him. And I, I totally agree that holding comes in different forms. But this one is yeah. there yeah, are yeah. limits and there are consequences. And the consequence, right. I just want to say importantly, is not punishment. It is right. It is yeah. not isolation. Right. It's, it's sitting yeah. you down. Yes, you have to get... You have to calm down. You have to re-regulate, but you're going to do it in my presence. We're going to do it together, and I'm going to treat you with respect. Are you ready? If you're ready, let's go. If you're not ready, we can stay. I I just – it's just such a – it's so packed, that one example, Mm. so packed Mm. with wisdom. That you mm. that you and your team embodied. You just did it because of the theory, because of the training, but it's not – it's not actually rocket science. You know, any teacher hearing this can be thinking, huh, I could try this. Right. And I think that's what I get from your work too, from um, reading your book and in your website and the podcast, it's like exactly like teachers can do this once given access to it. (laughs) And I I like, I know I keep saying this, but I think it's important to emphasize that I started doing this in a regular classroom. So it's possible because I know people will be hearing like, oh, of course you have smaller number of students and more staff. And that's for sure true for the kids with super high intensive needs. Yes. (laughs) Each of them in the same classroom. Yes, right. And that's the other thing is then you have everyone in the classroom struggles with many of the same things, but it can, can, can work in a regular classroom. And I feel so passionate about it because it supports the students, but it also supports the teachers. And it helps the teachers feel less burnt out if they realize, oh, there's a way to think about this. And if they have a team to think about it with, or at least one other person, one other staff person to think about it with. So, so like with this child who we, we really conceptualize as needing us to idealize him again, 
him to idealize us. Right. And we talked about him at the end of the day, like especially when he was first there, like what, what is the looking at us and about to pinch about? Like, what is that? Um, what is he? It's like, we didn't actually instantaneously know, but what is he asking us? But that's often the question. What is he asking us to do? Yes. Or what yes. is he looking for from us? Oh, and I would say, he, what is he teaching us about himself? Mm, mm, right. 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 What is he teaching us about his data. expectations of the world? Right. So mm. he's expected yeah. to yell at him. Right. Yeah. So it's, it, yeah or some big cool. response. Exactly. Yeah. A really big response. Um, and, you know, I really would just say, I'm like, hey, yeah. you can't pinch. And he would be like, okay. <laughs> and it really, like, it was amazingly not a big deal asking him <laughs> not to do that. Um, and I think that was a relief to him. Yes. Like, oh, I actually can just not pinch her. Um, but I had I, I, I had I or my colleagues yelled or, or in Freaked some out, way. Sent him out of the room. Yeah. Right. In some way, I had a, re- a big response that to him was like, oh, you know, this is very disorganized. And not the language he would use, but this is very disorganized to my teacher. <laughs> it would have been a really different outcome. Yes. Yeah. And I would say that when a student tests or his child tests the authority figure and mm. discovers that they can disorganize that authority figure, yeah. what they realize is that they are not safe that they are not held. So this place isn't yeah. a safe place and it almost compels more testing because the right. answer that they want is, no, this is a safe place. But if they expect the world to be unsafe, that is when they expect to have, they discover that they have the power to disorient and, and dysregulate adults. It's yeah. like, it's to me, it's like sniffing a bad smell over and over again. Like, is it really that bad? Yes, it's really that bad. It's like <laughs> testing reality over and over again. Is it really this bad? Yes, it is. And then, then they become filled up with emotion and then it becomes a, just a way of life that they mm-hmm. cannot regulate themselves because they do not see that the adults in their lives are regulating themselves either. And we're back to this model where we model metabolism. And if we can metabolize, as you really just so beautifully do, Erica, so calmly with a, with a slight sense of humor and a sense of confidence in yourself, we are teaching our children, our students, this is how it can be. This is how it can be. Yes. And you can yeah. be. how I can be. You are trusted. Yeah. It's just I, such mm-hmm. beautiful work. And as you say, actually fairly simple, but it requires so much so much, I think, personal work on the part of teachers yes, who don't want to see, see their students this way. Yeah, and I think for me, as a the, what allowed me to sort of transform this way as a teacher was having the people, the professional, you know, colleagues in my life to do this with. So first, Dr. K, and then the team. Yeah, um, yeah. So you know, being able to make sense of the feelings the students bring up in me or just the feelings I have about it and the theory, right? It's both. It's both the intellectual piece and the emotional piece. Mm -hmm. They're both very, very present in the work. And again, teachers are just not trained in it. And teachers sign up to teach content, you know, and really certainly develop relationships with students. Mm -hmm. But when you're in your teacher training, you're thinking about developing relationships with students. You're not necessarily thinking about kids who are so depleted in their developmental needs that they're trying to hurt you or hurt other kids. And and sadly that there's so much more, certainly in Vermont schools, of of that happening in regular classrooms. And I'm hearing those stories. And to my mind, it's like we've got to do something 
differently because of violence and aggression in the classrooms, in, including really young ele- preschool and elementary classrooms is so pervasive. How do we turn this tide so we can get back to the work of teaching? And so these children can have success, successful experiences in school and feel good about themselves and be on the soccer team and, and do all those regular kid things that we want them very much so to be able to do. You know, you're making me think when you were talking about your team and the space that, that meeting with your team provided for you to have your feelings get them out there, be honest about them. And I would say organize your feelings and the data that you've collected about the, the students using theory. Yes, That yeah. is precisely what, I have to put a plug in here, what a teacher support group is, which is the work that I do with yes. regular yes. teachers, yes. like yeah. teachers anywhere, everywhere, administrators, teachers, yep. um, an opportunity to get together weekly and talk about what the hell's going on with you, like how you're feeling and the worst feelings that you can possibly have that you want to hide and you don't want to admit. No, put them out on the table because they're meaningful. And as a group, we can normalize them, we can empathize with each other, and then we can get down to work and figure out what those feelings that we have and the behaviors we're seeing in our students are teaching us about the students. I'm sorry. (laughs) Our feelings are data. Exactly. Our feelings are data. Our behaviors are data. Yes. And, and the idea is to formulate formulate them into a, I call it a guess. You call it a hypothesis, right? Same thing. Right, right, you make yeah. a guess because we can never know. And I also want to say one other thing that I, I love that you, that you made me think of. For teachers not to know actually should be okay. We have to not know. We have to make guesses. Mm-hmm. But I think teachers and the whole education field believe that they have to know. And so their approach to students is, I know what's wrong with you, or I know what you need. And that yeah. actually just aggravates the situation. Going yeah. into a situation, going into a relationship, going into a, a group where you're talking about students and not knowing is the worst thing in the world for some teachers, but yeah. it's the best right. thing in the world for the students yeah. and for the teachers but they need to be contained as they experience that too. And that's what these teacher support groups or your debriefing yeah. groups do. Yeah. To do it alone is, I think, I don't know if that would work <laughs> to do it alone. And it makes sense that teachers would want to know because it's education. You know, it's like the, right. yeah, the whole idea is that we can learn things and we know, and, and to sit with uncertainty is, is hard. And it's very different than, teaching math which is you know these again teachers sign up to do a different thing and yet this is what's being demanded of them by the behaviors in the classroom yeah, yeah. and i can offer one very short example that i've um helping with teacher trainings which i've done a little bit of here and there i've used this example a couple times so empathy itself can be data collection that's how heinz Cohen thought about it if we can sense into a person's experience we can start to understand them and start to know maybe a little bit of their in the service of how do we help them grow or, you know, bear witness to their growth and so on. Um, So I had a student who one day you had had him probably been working with him for a few months and he was working on a a math paper and he just, I could see him (laughs) like I was a little bit sitting away from him. I could see him start to, go inward and shut down a little bit. And, you know, I could read him pretty well at this point. So I moved a little closer and then he picked up his math paper and was about to tear it in half. You know, it's a classic move, just tear it up. Right. <laughs> and I just looked at him and said, um, Matt, I was like, yeah. And he didn't keep tearing it. And then I said, uh, can I sit closer? Yeah. 
And then I just sat down next to him and I was quiet. He set the paper down. And then I just said, you know, you don't have to do this alone. We can do it together. He was like, okay. <laughs> and, we did, and then we did it. We did the math. He just didn't have the words to say, I need help, or this is too hard. Or, you know, so I just, and you know, you can hear that at first I wasn't using, even using complete sentences because <laughs> it would have been too much. And again, I work with the really young kids. So they get to a pre-verbal stage very, very quickly. Yes. Um, and so when he, he was getting dysregulated and then, so fewer words was better. And then it was very um, brief, but it was just me. And what I was doing was thinking like, I was thinking, but also feeling what might he be feeling by just asking myself that question occurred to me. I wonder if this feels really hard to do by himself. And that was when the, the test was asking him and he said, yes. Right. <laughs> so, um, and then always work that perfectly. No, <laughs> but if it hadn't worked, that it would have meant my hypothesis was wrong. It wasn't about doing it alone. It was about something else. And then we would have, you know, try, I would have tried something else. Exactly so, right. The hypothesis yeah. is not the end all. It is the probe that then either solves a problem or generates more data. And then you right, fold exactly. the data back in, right? Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. beautiful. It's so beautiful. It, and I just want to say, again, this is why I perceived you as a kindred spirit when I read your article. Like, mm -hmm. you're doing this work out there. You and Bill Ketterer and, and others are doing that work out there. Right. I didn't even know about it. I'm doing right. this work here. It's the same work. It, you know, yeah. The theories, yeah. I'm, I'm not specifically <laughs> self-psychology. I use a lot of theories. And so do you. Yeah. I mean, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 But we talk it, about observations and, yeah. Right? Good enough and being, but mm -hmm. it is so fantastic you are confirming my own experience and the experiences of teachers mm -hmm. that I've worked with, where if you think this way, you can crack these nuts that seem so, uh, so hard that you can't move this child. They yeah. crack open almost like butter. It's a yeah. totally mixed metaphor, but, but yeah. if you get it you. right, right, you get it. This is what's so exciting about talking to you. If you get it right, it yields children yield in that they get ready to do the learning that you're there to help them do. And if you don't figure out how to crack the nut, then they're going to be teaching you every day, all day, how you're failing them, yeah. <laughs> what they yes, need that absolutely. you're not giving them. And they're not going to be able to learn and they're not going to try to learn because the most important message is see me, see me, mm -hmm. mirror me, know me and solve this, hold me. So, you know, like give me what I, th I'm not exactly sure I need. Figure this out, make a good guess, work with me, connect with me, which is also what your story just yeah. brought up in me that you connected with that kid just like that. Yeah. And that's what he needed connection to. Yes. Yeah, which we were able to do, you know, with him. Yeah, because of this relationship we had built with him over. Exactly. Yeah. He knew exactly yeah. how to read you. Yeah. Well, I just wonder if there's anything else we didn't cover that you would like to mention before we close. Hmm. I mean, I think I've been saying it, but for me, the mission of this work that I'm doing. So I'm in another therapeutic classroom. I have a wonderful colleague and I'm really proud of the work we're doing. It's hard work, but I'm, I'm really proud of it. You know, I want to see this move beyond. Um, I want it in every classroom. <laughs> you know, I want, I want teachers to know that this is accessible to them. And I think one thing that was helpful to me to pass on was it did not 
when I first started working with Dr. K, it did not feel like I was being asked to do more. The last thing a teacher needs is like, do more stuff. No, <laughs> that's not what it felt like. It actually felt like if I do this, it may sound a little strange, but it's more efficient. Yeah. It's moving slower to get somewhere quicker. Yeah. Oh. So that would be one of the things I would like to say. Like, it's not actually more. And eventually it becomes second nature. Yes. With the right, with training, with support. And it sounds like, you know, the work you're doing with teachers allows them that. And that's, it's a gift to teachers that many teachers just don't have access to yet. And my hope is that it, it will become much, much, much more accessible. And the, and the other thing I would say is um, you have a book and then Dr. K also has a book. So there are, you, know, you guys are trying to get it out there. <laughs> and his book, the one that we use is called Reducing Anger and Violence in Schools. So your work and his work is a place for teachers to start. Yes. Yes. So. so just to close, I want to say there will be a transcript of this interview on my website, and I will yeah. have links to um, Dr. K, to his book, oh, um, wonderful. and to your article. So people can yeah. try to get, if, they, if they're interested, they can look these things up. So yeah, that's there. Please check it out. Erica, I just want to thank you so much. I want to thank you for responding to my email about your article. I mean, I was so thrilled that you did. And we've had many meetings between then and now. And I'm so excited about the work that you're doing and the training that you're getting and the way you think about teaching and the world. And I just hope we stay in touch. All right. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad you reached out. I want to thank the teacher whose story I just told, you know who you are, for your generosity and wisdom and commitment to becoming an ever better teacher. You rock. Here are two more people who rock. My endlessly patient and talented audio editor and social media guru, Julian Andrakai, and my brother, Tom Burris, who song Lifetime from his amazing album, Jabbering Trout, You've Got to Check It Out, ushers us into and out of the teacher's lounge. Also, my always honest and astute editor, Brad Wells. Thank you, one and all. If you are a teacher with a story, I'd love to hear it. You can contact me at my website, teachingthroughemotions.com. That's one word, teaching through emotions, and you spell through the long way, no shortcuts. Click on the podcast, then on Let's Get Started, and send me an email. I mean it. Suffering in silence gets you nowhere. Telling your story is your first step towards understanding and relief. Contact me. Come on into the teacher's lounge. You will feel better. It's all true. It's all better.